Welcome to Leadership Revolution with your host and accomplished leader, Megan Scully Casillas. Get ready to conquer your fears and become an effective leader. Let's start the revolution. As a new manager, facilitating change comes with the job because the fact is you going into your role creates change. Most managers or managers who are newly in their position, once they get the lay of the land, have plans to adjust something in the way that their team functions. Or perhaps as a manager, you are expected to support a larger organizational shift. Either way, change management, or better yet, change facilitation is a skill that many managers don't receive any support in developing. Nor do they receive much, if any, guidance on how to align their team in a productive and positive manner when change is imminent which is why I am so, so excited for this week's expert guest interview. This week, I sat down with expert change facilitators, Jenny Magic and Melissa Breaker. And I know I say this every single week, but our chat was really good. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Jenny and Melissa are experienced change facilitators who have been helping teams work better together for more than two decades. From coaching to change management, they facilitate the often difficult conversations around change and innovation with empathy and deep listening. For change leaders and teams who are feeling stuck, they provide insights and tactics so change happens with them versus to them. Their new book, Change Fatigue, Flip Teams from Burnout to Buy-In, offers practical, tactical tools and tips for teams within large organizations dealing with small changes. They believe that all change, regardless of size, deserves strategic thinking to prepare teams for change and boost adoption. So without further ado, please enjoy this week's episode with guest experts, Jenny Magic and Melissa Breaker. Jenny and Melissa, I am so excited to have you on Leadership Revolution podcast. I think new managers and managers in general have so much that they can learn and glean from the both of you and particularly from your recently published book about change facilitation. I have been doing a lot of research um, on the training or lack thereof that new managers get. And if they get any training at all, it's certainly it's highly likely that it does not include anything around change facilitation or how to navigate those conversations with your staff. And so I just, I'm very thankful and excited that you both are here today to chat about this super important topic. And I'm excited to jump into it. So I'm hoping that you both can just start by sharing a little bit about your leadership journey and how you've evolved into the leaders that you are today. Melissa, would you like to go first? Sure. Well, I've come to leadership through, well, it's been a bit of a journey. So I started originally in marketing and I transitioned and started a content strategy agency. And through that process, we'd make lots of recommendations about things people could do to improve their digital experiences and how content teams and teams can work together. And I would go back and I realized that the recommendations weren't being implemented. And there's nothing worse than investing all this energy into something and being excited about it and it ending up on a shelf versus um, applied. So I was like, there has to be a better way to support leaders and managers to get this work done. 
because we're great at planning, but the actual activation of a strategy can be really tricky. So that landed me in change management, facilitation and coaching. So I've been working with a variety of clients, Fortune 500 to nonprofits. You know, Jenny and I work together to really help people understand how to get the work done in a really great way with their teams. Amazing. Have you found a significant difference between the size of the company in terms of the recommendations that you make for navigating this process? Or do you feel like a team is a team and the foundation is the same? I think every team has its own flavor, just like ice cream, like they're all ice cream. But you know, if you have something that really works, or, you know, is your that you're able to kind of pull together a certain way, there are certain differences. Fundamentally, I think there are lots of commonalities though in how we can get the teams working together. So I know that's kind of a mixed answer. It's a bit of both. No, it's but a great answer. Depending on your recommendations and, and where things are happening, it's actually really more about listening and bringing teams together in the right way. So there's different problems that you're solving, but we find that coming with the right approach and really listening and working with teams amazing things can happen. Mm -hmm. Jenny, what about you? Can you share your leadership journey with us a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I um, also started out in marketing when I had to pick a major. I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. And so I was like, well, eventually marketing will come in handy. That was how I thought of it. I did not expect 20 plus years later to actually be you know, doing marketing. But I did. In 2008, I started my own content strategy agency. I hadn't met Melissa yet, but we were on parallel paths. And similar frustrations about not seeing things go all the way to implementation. It can be really frustrating to think that your legacy is just a bunch of reports in someone's, you know, PDF file folder. I co-owned a web design firm for a little bit. I went in-house at a public policy agency working on public education for a little bit, but I've always been drawn back to consulting. I find it really helpful to think about problem solving with fresh eyes and being that outsider who can come in and sort of a combination of new perspectives and speaking truth to power is sort of my specialty. So during the pandemic, I decided, much like Melissa, that I wanted to add some skills to my toolbox. So I became certified as a professional coach. Uh, I did some visual facilitation training with the, um, the game storming team. I got certified to benchmark psychological safety, psychological safety, and all of those things being central to how we're going to solve problems for organizations. So instead of just what the strategy is, the what, but I wanted to think more about how. And I think that like being in-house, being at consulting into big enterprises, at nonprofits, at public policy, like it gives you this perspective that to Melissa's point earlier, all teams have the same problems. There really isn't a big difference in my opinion from the big giant companies to the little teams because a team, the team of people that are working together tend to be, you know, five to 20 people that are interacting, no matter how large the company, there's a group that is a team and that team has a team dynamic and those dynamics are human dynamics. And some of the enterprise culture may filter in and, you know, smaller teams may have different like budget and resource constraints, but like generally speaking, the people problems are the same, which is great because it means they have pretty straightforward and proven ways of, of being addressed. Yeah. Jenny, you said speaking truth to power. That piques my interest because I think managers are often put in a place where they have to speak up either on behalf mm -hmm. of their teams or 
you know, to folks who are higher up on the ladder than they are. Yeah. Can you speak to that a little bit? Absolutely. I think you hit on a really essential challenge of not being the CEO and not being a single contributor. When you are a, a manager sort of in the middle of an enterprise, you tend to have top-down forces wanting to push you for growth and innovation and outcomes. And you have bottom-up forces from your team saying, we're human, we're not robots, we can't do everything you know, please prioritize, please help us understand. And I feel like that's only gotten harder in the pandemic era. I feel like leadership in this moment is really pushing down hard to get back to normal. Mm -hmm. And I feel like workers are really pushing back hard that normal didn't work for them before. And they're certainly not going to go back to it willingly. And so that leaves that manager in a position to do a few choices, right? The old way would be push back down on their team and say, I don't care if you don't want to, this is the order from the top and we're, we're all gonna get fired if we don't do this, right? That's sort of this old style of thinking. You know, in the middle and what we've been hearing a lot about for the last five years is empathy and, and looking at your team with humanity and like really trying to meet them where they're at. Those are all incredibly important skills. But I think what has been missing from the conversation is managing up that speaking truth to power piece where you are able to turn around and say, I know what you're trying to tell me about growth. I want you to know I'm on the same page. I hear you. I believe in that. But here's what's possible. Here's what we can promise. Here's what we can get behind. Here's what we're going to need to shelve. You know, you're, you're pushing for this initiative, um, this other one that we haven't talked about in a while. Can I shelve it? Can I officially like put it away for a minute so that we can focus on whatever it is you're really um, interested in? A lot of times leadership will say, no, 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 just fit it in, like make more time. We're like, great, more time. Do I get more head count? Do I get more? Like, <laughs> how, how do I pull that off? And so being able to um, thoughtfully articulate the boundaries of what is possible without burnout, uh, I think is that is that key part about speaking truth to power. And I found as an outsider, when I'm a consultant, it's so much easier because that's what the boss brought me in to do is tell him what's broken or tell her what could be better. So it's really easy to say, well, you're pushing your team too hard and they're never going to get that done. So if you find yourself having trouble, look look and see if there's an outsider nearby already working with your organization that you can make an ally because that outsider sometimes has a louder voice upwards. I think the other thing that you as a consultant don't have to navigate is the power dynamic between the middle manager and the executive leadership team. I, I'm on the executive leadership team and I still have to navigate that because I'm not like the highest. And I think that's one of the challenges for me too is figuring out, well, where can I push and where where do I need to just like figure out how to make this okay for my team? Okay. How did you two come to work together? I, we'll jump into the book in a second, but I'm hoping you can share a little bit about how your partnership has developed and how, yeah, how you two work together and how this book came to fruition. What inspired you to write it? We actually met at a conference and it was one of those instantaneous, oh, well, hi. And at that conference, we promised to speak the following year together. So, and I cannot tell you why we would actually like, it was just like, we're speaking together next year. And we did that. We did that multiple times, in fact. And then um, we started to have a look at the clients we were working with. And, you know, we would just throw ideas back and forth around, you know, things to think about. And then we started to work with on clients together. And through that process, 
you know, our relationship and of course this book emerged because we kept hearing time and time again, you know, people didn't want change to feel like it was happening to them. It was mm -hmm. actually happening with them. We mm -hmm. saw how people were struggling with, you know, it's my way or the highway, the old style of thinking versus how can we bring people along for a change journey? And how do we engage and actually meet people where they are? Because, you know, change fundamentally, it's very personal. Like you're thinking about what's going to happen versus Jenny or my thoughts, even though we're looking the same direction, we're heading with the same vision, we all have very different perspectives. Mm -hmm. And the great news is, you know, the clients that we work with, it's absolutely more than what you're doing, but it's actually less than you think. It's often just a different perspective, <laughs> like your perspective on how it all happened. Yeah. Everything Melissa said, and specifically, she went and got certified in change management while I was still heavy in marketing strategy. And I actually had a client where I had written a strategy and we were just running our heads up against the wall. So I very specifically brought her in for the skill set that she had to like drop in and, and solution with that team. And what I realized at the time is that the discipline of change management, I often say like capital C, capital M, like change management is a very official thing. You get certified in it. There's um, conferences. And, and when an organization, especially a big enterprise is going through like a monster change, they'll bring someone in often like full-time contract for an extended period of time to be like the change management person. And those, the skills that that person brings in are critical to a, a big change, but they're also really, really, really helpful in all kinds of changes. So I was finding myself working more on small changes, like we're going to use a new project management system or, you know, you six departments that have been on your own website, we're all going to come together and make one website hub. And so we have to agree on naming and menus and taxonomy. So those kinds of medium-sized change, small to medium change, they don't get an outside full-time change management support. That, like That's just not in the budget. But those same skill sets are really, really valuable. So we decided to try to bring them in where we could. And I, the book was an evolution of that, basically trying to write a handbook for managers who don't get the luxury of dedicated change management support, but who still are going to have to day in and day out, get people to do things they don't want to do, which is in my brain, like the definition of what change management is. Um, we've labeled it change facilitation, thinking less about like trying to separate ourselves from that big expensive like monster way of thinking about change into just like all we're here to do is just facilitate like you've got to change you a place you're trying to get to we're just going to facilitate that we're going to make it easier and, and we're going to teach you those skills so that you don't necessarily need a resource but you just build your change muscle over time i actually love that you coined this term um i work in an environment or an industry i guess well i won't speak for the whole industry but the term management really comes with like a, a power dynamic just innately tied to it. And so being able to think of it as, you know, progression that's being facilitated by someone or something really by humans takes that out. I, in my current position, I came in and I pretty drastically changed our marketing strategies and the team was completely on board. My marketing team was completely on board. But I think that with change, our cross-functional partners had 
some difficulties with it because our processes changed right away. The focus that we were leaning in on from a marketing standpoint changed. The questions that the marketing team was asking changed. Everything changed. And I wish I had had a book like this before I just like threw us all into the deep end of of the pool because it has been a long 18 months. (laughs) And not to say that everyone, our cross-functional partners and the marketing team haven't been amazing, but there's been some rockiness to it, right? And I think when folks who are thinking about change management, change facilitation, they think it has to be a big thing. Like, you know, our company is being absorbed by another one, but it also can be as simple as like changing the processes in your internal team that also impact cross-functional partners. And I just, I love that you guys have created this handbook, if you will, because I would have been desperate for something like this 18 months ago. <laughs> so I'm glad it's here now. <laughs> Sorry, it's late. <laughs> As we're still going through it, frankly. So it will be helpful moving forward for sure. But given that, can you share a little bit about what steps leaders can take to build healthy psychological safety that fosters collaboration and an innovative environment so that people don't clamp down on what we've always done, but that they feel comfortable trying these new things. Uh, I'll jump in on this one. Psychological safety is like my passion topic. And the reason I love it so much is back in the 90s, there was a bunch of research done from Harvard, like what makes a great team? And that's where this phrase came to be. So if you're not familiar with the phrase, like um, I can trust you, Megan, and I can trust you, Melissa. But when we get in a team, there's a different dynamic that happens. So it's something a little bit up from trust. It's a team dynamic, but it has to do with just feeling um, safe and comfortable in that team. And it has four areas or domains that make up psychological safety, one of which is open conversation. So being able to, again, speak truth to power, speak truth peer to peer, let that be okay. Another one is inclusivity so that everybody's voice is heard and that we are even you know, calling on folks who may not be the first to speak. Willingness to help, which is like, what is that like natural innate instinct that if you're falling behind and I've got space, I just want to help you get there because I feel like we're on the same team and I trust that you would do the same for me. And those elements are, oh, and that last one is attitude towards risk and and failure. So can we try something, agree that we had the best information at the time, experiment, go through failure, and then have that be okay, have that be a learning experience versus have that be something that someone is thrown under the bus for, that there's consequences, or that I've having to give my social capital in order for that to work. What's cool is that was kind of coined and proven decades ago, but then in 2008, Google decided to try to replicate the same thing with their staff and say, what makes a great team at Google? And they did like a million variables. It's You can research project Aristotle. It's fascinating. But basically at the end of it, they were like, actually, it's just psychological safety. Like that's the one that like all the variables we tested, it's that one. So to me, that sort of feels like if Harvard and Google have just come at the same thing from different perspectives and landed like squarely, wholeheartedly in the same spot, then that probably is something you ought to focus on. So I would say that um, in order to build that, the most important one for me is the open conversation piece, because none of the others really can happen without that open conversation. And the beautiful part is it doesn't have to be top down. So of course, managers who create psychological safety put these domains in practice on purpose, but you can also lead up. If you've got a, a leader who isn't great at open conversation, you can at least try to get your peers 
comfortable with open conversation, right? You can start to model, like if you're willing to be vulnerable and say something that's on your mind, spend a little social capital, give them a safe place to do the same. You're modeling that open conversation that that then kind of like builds on itself and allows those other things to come true. We know that employees who feel psychologically safe are less likely to quit their job. In a McKenzie survey recently that somebody said 89% of employees said that psychological safety at work is essential, but only 26% of their leaders, only 26% felt like their leaders created that environment. So huge overwhelming majority says it's critical much smaller percentage says it's happening. And so that Delta is a place where leaders at every level can be, you know, investing, dropping coins in that, that bank to try to build um, those important skills. Jenny, when we're talking about psychological safety, I am wondering if you have a recommendation for managers who, I'll just speak to myself. I really work hard to create an environment where teams feel comfortable, my team feels comfortable having those conversations and can tell me when they think I'm wrong. Sometimes my excitement for a project or, yeah, I'll just say my excitement for a project can come off very passionately. (laughs) And I worry sometimes that my team, when that excitement comes out, that my team doesn't necessarily feel comfortable saying like, help me prioritize what's on my workload. I don't know that that's the best way to do it. And so even though my steamrolling is not in a, you're doing this wrong and this is terrible. It's a, this is a great idea. Let's do, you know, let's take this to the moon. How can you facilitate psychological safety that allows for conversation when excitement is the reason why people are not speaking up? Yeah. What I'm hearing in that is that you have a destination in mind by the time this conversation is happening. And one of the things that we talk a lot about in the book, all of chapter one, is essentially making sure that your team is with you on the problem definition so that they are just as excited about the potential solution. And this is a place where a lot of leaders are like, I don't want that many cooks in the kitchen. I don't want them to see how messy this problem is. Like, I wanna just go off in a room with a couple senior leaders identify the problem, and then come to them and get them excited about a solution. I'm not sure if that's exactly what's happening, but what you described can often be that situation. And what we found is if before you're there, before you have the excitement of an amazing solution, if you're like, I think we could do better at X, that's the spot for open conversation. That's the spot for inclusive conversation and willingness to try things and fail. Because if you can get them to sort of sit with you and say, actually, you're solving a symptom, not the problem. Or actually, I hear where you might be going, but like we tried that before you worked here and um, here's a, a minefield for us to watch out for. They often in that problem definition bring you so much wisdom. So A, your solution is better, but then when the team does kind of like go, okay, I think this is the solution, you're not coming to them with a solution. You're coming to them going, look what we decided to do together. How are we going to do this? Mm -hmm. Right. And that's a different moment. And so it's really just pulling them in earlier. And to Melissa's point earlier, it feels like it costs some time to do that because it's an extra meeting or there's some extra explaining or there's extra layers, but you're going to have to explain and get them on board at some point. The earlier you do it, the more likely you are to have them with you alongside you instead of defensive or resistant to this energy that's coming at them. Mm -hmm. Melissa, what would you add? I think also, I think 
um, to slow down to Jenny's last point. When we get excited and it's palpable, right? People don't want to disappoint you because you're like, aha, I've got it. But when we slow down and we get really curious to say, here's the actual problem we're looking to solve. Is that right? Based on your experience, we're not talking to, again, to Jenny's point, we're not talking symptoms, but is this the real problem that we're, we're looking to solve? People have ideas, I'm sure. And actually being invited to, to brainstorm or to problem solve together, they might have an idea that is outside of your realm of knowledge, you know, because all of us are much better than just one of us often. And so engaging them and having that, that honest and just being open. And this is new behavior often for leaders and managers, right? Because in their mind, it's like, I have positional power, therefore I should know, and I should be leading the team a certain way. But more and more research actually points to being vulnerable and transparent. And that key actually allows people to build that, the team psychological safety and actually turn up and be their real selves versus whatever image that they think they need to put on because your leadership style is a certain way. Therefore I will meet you. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and this is the real joy of facilitating the conversation is that we allow space for people to show up and turn up and be exactly who they are. And once you start to do that in the team, I just got goosebumps. So <laughs> when you start to do that, amazing things happen. People work and are like, admit things. You get to know your, your other team members in different ways. And it's all because you slowed down and you provided a space for people to, to be vulnerable and to get like, Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, maybe a bit more of that or less of that. Because often we're so busy, like, we've got to do the work, we're doing the work, that we forget that internal team, that those dynamics, those human dynamics that Jenny mentioned earlier. They're actually the engine that will get you to your destination in a different mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. And yet we don't think about it. We just like, it's like brushing your teeth in the morning. It's like, and this is how I brush my teeth. Well, <laughs> Yes, you're going to get to an outcome, but maybe too, if you invest a little effort and you're a bit thoughtful, you know, amazing things. I can tell amazing things happen. I completely agree 100%. And Melissa, I love what you're saying about needing to start with questions versus managers relying or believing or being so bought into this thought that once you become a manager, you know everything. Like there's this implication that you become a manager and you should have all the answers and you should always know what's right and what's wrong and you should just know. And one of the things that I love the most actually about being a manager is that I don't know everything. I have a whole team who knows a whole lot more than I do. And I think recognizing that the process should start with questions is such a beautiful thing because it gives everyone around you some grace to figure it out, right? At least that's how I'm interpreting what you're sharing here. <laughs> so I hope I nailed that. But I, um, I, I am completely aligned with what you're saying here, I think. 
you brought up some beautiful points about starting with asking questions. For new managers, I think it can be hard to know what questions to ask and where to start. Do you have recommendations for what that process looks like? What kinds of questions to ask? Where to start? Often it's about starting with where people are before you get going to where Mm -hmm. you're heading. Because it's not only the how, which is the the destination and the vision, but the why. So when we think about different kinds of questions that open or unlock the right kind of connection within the group, it's often about admitting where you are in the mix, right? Like, is this the real problem we're solving? And as part of the book, we have this, um, we talk about the five whys because often we will start with a symptom and it's not until you drill down further and further that you get to the heart of what's actually happening. I think the best questions try to uncover assumptions. So if I'm sitting in a room and um, someone's telling me about a problem we have or a solution or a direction that we're going, I wanna understand um, what do we believe to be true about this problem? So. What are we assuming we can and can't do? What are our constraints? What are our limits? What are our timelines? How did we get here? And having each person sort of talk about like what they think contributed to you know the topic at hand, like we have a problem we're trying to solve. And if you have one person go, well, I think we got here because we moved too fast last quarter and we, we didn't slow down. And I think we got here because we didn't offer that feature that, you know, like just having people describe their assumptions for how we are where we're at is a really useful set of questions for someone who may not know where to start the querying process. Because what you're really trying to do is just to get people to tell you what they believe to be true and that they may think everyone else also believes to be true. But we know from many years doing this that there are almost always very different assumptions and constraints in people's heads. And therefore, what they're bringing to the table as a solution is very limited based on what they've already agreed to in their head. So, you know, as a team, if we can agree, um, you know, is this something we have to do this year? Uh, is this, a, you know, what, what are what are we stuck with and what are we believing to be true? Um, I think those are, are really useful questions. And then, you know, to Melissa's point, who are we <laughs> as people and what do we already know to be true? I think I've sat in many meetings where someone is like, this is definitely the problem and our solution is to be one of these three solutions. And so we're here to, you know, pick a solution and move forward. And I, I'm thinking, and I know everyone at the table is thinking like, that's not even the problem. And those three solutions are destined to fail and not solve the thing that you believe they will. But you didn't give me a place to say that. So if my job here is to pick one of these three solutions, let me just like skip to where you're at and help you pick one of these three non-functional solutions. And a great leader pauses and says, Am I asking the right questions? I love, Melissa says this all the time. She's, um, you know, what should I be asking? Whenever we're, you know, talking to clients, they're like, what else, what else do you need to know about this project? And it's like, well, what should I be asking that I haven't already? Or I like to say, don't give me what I asked for. Give me what I should have asked for. So as a manager, just opening that floor to let people say, well, you, you should have asked if we're even solving the right problem. And I'm, I have some thoughts about that, right? That's a question that gives people room to sort of raise their hand. Mm-hmm. I love that question. And I'm very thankful that you brought it up. I um, I'm in the process of onboarding and hiring two data analysts. And one of the major things that I need from them is to tell me what I need. 
you know, to tell me what kinds of reports we need, to tell me what information we should be looking at, to tell me what recommendations from a marketing perspective we should be recommending. And just saying it that way, I think, makes it so much easier. (laughs) Makes it so much easier. How would you recommend if someone's in a middle manager position and they're getting feedback from the top and they're getting feedback from the bottom that is just not aligned at all? I think that can be a really a place where a lot of folks freeze because they don't know how to advocate for the team that is going to be responsible for making these changes happen. And they then are faced with having to say, this is a great idea, even if they don't necessarily agree with it. If you could recommend one thing for a person who's in that situation, what would that be? Where do you start to na- like, yeah, where, where do you even start to navigate that situation? I would jump in and say that psychological safety upwards. So if I'm a middle manager and my executive team is sort of pushing things on me, that is the place where I'm going to say, okay, I hear you. I will do my best with this this specific thing because I'm probably not going to be able to build psychological safety in this moment. But if I'm feeling like the truth of the team I lead is not welcome in the conversation with my executive, then that signals that I don't have the psychological safety I need to have open conversation with that leader. And so that's, if if you feel like this might be happening to you, that would be a case where you, you receive the request because you're not going to win this one battle right this minute. And you say, okay, I'll do my best. Let me put that aside. Also, I need to talk to you about our dialogue, our open conversation, our, you know, like, how can I get more connected to that executive, understanding what is driving them, getting them to be vulnerable about why these demands are coming down without a lot of thought to who's executing them. There, There's pressure, there's something happening up there that is being, you know, pushed down mm-hmm. to you that you're not able to have a conversation about. And so I think the place where I've seen real success is to try to say to that leader up, what monkey is sitting on your shoulder, stressing you out? And how, how can I take it? How that's willingness to help. So showing willingness to help to that executive um, is often a place where you can start to build some psychological safety and they can say, wow, I know that's not your job, but, but thank you. I'm feeling overwhelmed. I'm getting these requests. I'm getting this pressure. We've got to meet these numbers. I may have had tunnel vision. I'm so sorry. Like, let's talk about what I've been asking your team to do. So you know, it doesn't often happen in that moment when you feel frozen, but it's, you know, move forward and then think really specifically about trying to build that vulnerable conversation with the people that you're receiving requests from, as well as modeling it for the people that you're leading. I think one thing I'd add to that too is convey commitment to the end result. So there's lots of different ways to get to a destination. And often, when you're telling versus asking, you miss different routes. And your job as a middle manager is to help convey that turn-by-turn approach for your team in order to get to that, that destination. And there's risk there if your senior management can't listen to you. So you can get information from your team, but how you position that really depends on to Jenny's point, your relationship with your senior leadership team. But there's also an opportunity to say, absolutely, we're committed to getting this work done. Based on what I'm hearing from my team, there may be some other opportunities to explore. And if we don't look at those opportunities, 
here are some things that we'll need to consider from a risk perspective. Because then your senior leadership team have a bit of a balanced scorecard, but you coming back to them saying, nah, uh, uh my team is like, forget it, sucker. You're not going to get that happening. But instead you're like, you know, you make an interesting point. Tell me more about, you know, why it's critical that these things happen in this. Could we also consider what if we look at one thing to think about at this stage would be, so then, you know, you're having a dialogue with your senior leader to, again, look at the scope and the parameters of the work in a different way. Because those conversations are hard, by the way. They Going to your boss to say, hey, by the way, <laughs> uh, I hate to break it to you, you're going to be facing some resistance. Yeah. No one wants well, to have that conversation. That, that looks like you don't have your team working in their way, right. right? Then it looks like you're failing somehow, which you're not, by the way. What I love about what you're saying here is that it all comes back to communicating expectations, you know? So that we're aligned, you know, everyone's aligned with the possible outcomes. And so even if the decisions are made that your team doesn't agree with, or is there's some friction there around that decision, that the folks who you are managing up understand certain implications of those decisions in a way that doesn't like shut them down from hearing it. You know, I think that the trickiness comes in being able to communicate that in a way that it is received which speaks to Jenny's point about vulnerability and asking the right questions. Melissa, I love the way that you position having these conversations by starting with a question. I am definitely going to use that in my future conversations for sure. (laughs) I think that's the thing of like, I don't know everything, so I need your help. This is another really powerful phrase. Mm-hmm. I need your help. It actually activates within us this like, okay, I'm here to help reaction, regardless of who you are, whether you're asking your team, whether you're asking your senior leadership, those words, I need your help. It changes conversations. It really does. I um, called a meeting, cross-functional meeting with a group that usually I would say it was way too big for decision-making, but I started it with that. We need your help to find a solution. This is why I've gathered us all here today. We can't fix this on our own. We need your help. Here are the challenges. Here's what we're hearing. What do you guys think? And it was one of the more productive group meetings I think I've ever had. That That one phrase, I need your help. I it's a game changer. It's a total game changer. <laughs> it takes all of the charge out of the conversation um, and it gets you aligned to the moving together and a direction towards problem solving. One thing I wanted to add is the scenario you described earlier when the leadership is sort of saying like, I need this done and this is the way I need it done. It just reminded me that a lot of times there's a little bit of micromanagement happening there where to Melissa's point, the senior leader's job is to say the destination and it's your job to figure out how your team's gonna get there. And so one of the tools that I found really useful when I feel like maybe the leader needs to just take a step back, tell me what outcome we're trying to achieve and then let me and my team negotiate the nuance of that is that 
communicating to the executive, there are things that only you can do. And this is not one of them. Like, this is what you hired me to do is to do these turn by turns. And I know that you're desperately needed in other rooms to make bigger decisions that I can't make. So you go do the things that only you can do. Tell me where you want us to get to. And then I'll come back to you to Melissa's point about, I will commit to the destination. I will not necessarily commit to the 52 steps you just said that you think get us to the destination at a pace that my team is going to absolutely revolt against. Um, I'll, I'll commit to the outcome. You go do what you're great at. Let me negotiate with my team and then come back to you with like how we think we're going to achieve those same results. Um, so it's like, you know, to Melissa's point, committing to the destination, but not the route and making sure that you have that team willingness to hear negotiate the route as a group. Well, and I think being committed to that as a manager for your team is also really important. And I try to do this with my team too, because I recognize that folks don't digest information the same way that I do. They don't learn their skills the same way that I do. They don't organize their day the same way that I do. So if I can say, look, I just need to get from A to Z and I don't care what B, C, D and all of the other steps look like as long as we get there on time and under budget and all of those things and allow them to work their magic, I often get a much better outcome (laughs) than if I Mm -hmm. tell them I need A, B, C, D, E. Um, And as someone who's very competitive and, you know, was a strong individual contributor, that can be difficult for me because I want to make sure that it's perfect and it's right. And it's, you know, exactly how it needs to be at the end. But when you give trust to the folks who are getting you there, it's usually better than what I had in my mind, honestly. So (laughs) that's true, right? And it costs you less, uh, it costs you less um, what we like to call change tokens, right? So if I if I force someone to do things my way, that costs something. And I only have so many of those I can spend. And so if you don't spend them or you don't need to, you save them up for another process where you're like, unfortunately, I need it done. I need it done my way. And I need it done in a way that you're not going to love. But you've sort of saved that social capital for the few times that that structure really is essential. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about how leaders might be able to navigate when they've used all of their change tokens, but change is still happening, particularly when it comes to change fatigue? How can leaders address change fatigue and team uncertainty in a way that maintains and ensures long-term success for change initiatives? I think there's different ways often to look at your team and look at the unsung heroes. So there are people within your team that may not have the same visibility, but who are are good performers. So often when, you know, you're faced with these changes, there's an opportunity to help grow their skills. So it doesn't, even though it's, so it means that we have different people stepping in to, to try different things. And although the fatigue, so that can help alleviate the pressure or the change fatigue on other people. So I see it kind of in two ways. It's like, what kind of systems thinking within your team can you navigate? In addition to what kind of personal things can you do to actually identify the strengths of the people and activate them in a way to put more change tokens back in their bank. So again, sometimes it's good to zoom I know it's like I answered the question in a roundabout way, but sometimes it's kind of both the individual requirements 
and uh, meeting people where they are, but it's also looking at the broader team dynamic and saying, are there other people in your team that can you can activate in a different way to help alleviate some of the things that other people are doing? Jenny, I know you have thoughts. Yes, I do. I love to talk about um, a concept called confidential inquiry that we talk about in the book, which is basically just like cone of silence conversations, often with an outsider. So they feel really safe. Um, we do this a lot where if a team is tired and there's no break in sight, just having a little like almost mini therapy session where they can go and say like, I'm so frustrated. This is exhausting. This isn't working. I'm not looking forward to this next phase. I'm nervous that all this work we're doing isn't going to result in what people think it's going to result in. And they just have a space to share those things. Two things happen. One, it feels good to get it off your chest and just like rant and let it be the truth and let what, you know, the things you're saying at home to your partner, like being able to say them in a work setting that might actually do something. Then what we tend to do is roll what we're hearing up into themes for leadership. So to say like, almost your entire team is worried about this. Or there's one person on your team complaining about how they really, really hate this part. And there's another person on your team saying that they wish they had more accessibility into that part. Like, what if we switch the roles? I know it doesn't work in the org chart and the way that you're thinking about, but like, I think you could relieve some pressure from them and give this person some visibility and some power and some autonomy. And like, you know, you, you win on both fronts and the work still gets done. I call that trading the uglies. So once we get to a team psychological safety where I can say like, I know I'm in charge of analytics and like the outcomes and the decisions about analytics, but I cannot look at our backend charts and graphs. I get overwhelmed. I go down rabbit holes. It's not my, my strong suit. I don't want to like, is there some way that we could collaborate as a team where I get the high levels, but someone else helps me with the process thinking, or there's a million variations of that where because someone's sort of in charge of a thing, they're in charge of like every last nitty gritty, ugly task underneath that thing. When in fact, tasks often don't um, ladder up perfectly. Like some people are left brain thinkers and right brain thinkers and learn different ways and prefer different kinds of work. So just being able to be really honest about what motivates them and what they're concerned about in those cone of silence sessions. And then to Melissa's point, bringing systems thinking to the team to be like, okay, this is what we heard. And we're going to try some new stuff. What if you, you know, raise your hand and say all the things you wish you didn't have to do anymore. A lot of times too, even if they don't have a good trade, you find a really awesome outsource. Oh, like all you need is for me to outsource this one tiny little part. And you would be so much happier. I may not have budget for a whole new headcount, but I can outsource that piece and make your pressure level go way down, but you're not going to be able to see those without sort of a comprehensive dialogue. I think what we're kind of circling around, particularly with this answer outside of, again, psychological safety and providing an environment where folks feel comfortable speaking their truth in an authentic manner, but also recognizing where there's flexibility in the systems that are already there. I think with some organizations, it can feel like the systems that are in place are very rigid. If it's not in this job description, then you can't do, you know, we can't make that shift. But I think part of one of the major charges for managers is to figure out where that flexibility is and where you can push and where you can't and how to, to leverage that in a way that supports the, your team and also your leader. So I, I love that we're kind of circling around that theme of really feeling empowered to find where that flexibility is and how you can use it to your advantage. We've talked a fair amount about 
resistance, but I'd like to dig in a little bit more into power struggles that happen during change initiatives and how you can navigate those power struggles, you know, resistance to change that are the ones that feel really, that are impactful to the day-to-day work. Um, I have had staff who really have been not just made to feel uneasy with change, but actively avoid or resist or communicate dissatisfaction with those changes. And I'm wondering if you have any recommendations for folks for how to navigate that and to kind of regroup everybody so they're focused more on the solution than why this change is horrible. Often um, what we've experienced that resistance, you can expect resistance, by the way, that's a very normal part of anything, any sort of change that you're going to be doing, even if it's a small one, like, oh, we're going to adapt this workflow to include another sign off here. People's first reaction is like, what? Why? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's the next, the next thing. Often we neglect to tell people why we tell them the what and we don't tell them the why, because fundamentally we're all in it for ourselves. And I hate to say it. So but like, the, you know, the what's in it for me is a really big part of um, how people navigate change because, you know, to Jenny's point earlier, all change is lost. There is a, you have to let go of something in order to gain something. So often, you know, earlier when we said like bring people in early by helping prepare people and creating readiness for change, we can help reduce the resistance. We're not going to make everyone happy. That is also something that Jenny and I can confirm after years of doing this work. No one will be, you know, like all the team, they're not all going to be happy. But when we engage people in different ways around the what's in it for me, not only what are we doing and how is it different, things like what's not changing to create more certainty and then explaining the change in in personal means like, are there going to be new org structures or titles or you know finances? Is it going to mean new process or workflows? Are you going to be working with different people? And do we know who's going to be impacted? Often, the other thing is that there's these knock-on effects with our change, right? And some of the relationships are going to change. But if we talk about it in advance, it doesn't feel like, what? I have to work with, oh, we're working with that group? Oh. You know, we can prevent some of those things. Or in some cases, like, aha, I'm not saying all change is bad either, mm-hmm. by the way. Yeah. But when we're talking about resistance, people have a natural inclination to respond a certain way. Jenny, what are some of your thoughts? Well, I like to say that no imagined future is better than the current status quo is safe. So that safety is really, really valuable. And we're trying to convince people to leave that safety and go to an unknown place. And to be honest, a lot of the skills I use in the resistance space are ones that I also use at home with my children. And I think that there's something ahead you can sort of put on your like parenting hat, or if you're not a parent, you there's all the literature and stuff out in the world that you know, like give a kid three choices and they're more likely to make one of those choices happy, happily than if you just sort of like try to shove one choice down their throat. So thinking it, uh, about what it means to Melissa's point, when we say, hey, something's going to change. On its surface, rationally, that like workflow change makes a ton of sense. But to Melissa's point, who am I working with? Oh, they're going to get the credit. I used to get credit for this, but now it's going to skip me and it's going to look like they did all the work. So like 
thinking about what the unintended consequences are, sort of the power dynamics and being able to speak to them in the introduction of the problem and solution, hopefully early enough that their major concerns are mitigated before they are presented with something they can either accept or resist, right? Because that's the situation when you say, okay, it's time to go get your shoes on. My kid can either accept or resist. If all day long I've said, hey, later today, we're going to do this. And oh, it's almost time. And oh, can you go find your shoes? By the time it's time to put them on, they're not like accept or resist the going in the car. Like we've given them a lot of opportunities to like see where we're going and to know that it's not optional and give them a lot of what one of my parenting coaches calls pre-minders, like remind them in advance of something that's going to be happening. So I think um, that's a, a huge part of preventing resistance. But once you're in a situation, maybe you didn't get to do those steps, maybe somebody from the top just sort of shoved something down and you didn't get a chance to, to lead change or facilitate change the way you would want. The key, I would say, is not to resist resistance. Accept it as natural, normal, and not personal. It is not about you as the messenger of this change. It is about them and what's going on in their head and their heart. So the first step is just to listen to whatever they say, even if they are a hundred percent wrong. So no correcting, you know, if they're like, this change is going to cost us million, this change is going to be the worst thing ever. I am not, you know, it's like, I'm listening, I'm hearing, I'm validating. And validating doesn't mean accepting or agreeing. It just means I hear that you're concerned about that. And that's a really useful, like, I hear your concern. Um, let me write that down. Let me think about, oh, that sounds tough. Let me let me hear and repeat back what I've heard from you, right? Even if only a sliver of what they're saying is true, you can let them feel heard. It releases the pressure and they're like, okay, I've said my piece, now what? And you wanna take that sliver that was true and say like that concern you have, that's probably true and here's how we're gonna mitigate it. Some of the other things that you said, are hypothetical and I don't necessarily think that they're going to happen that way. So let's talk about like how we can design a solution that's less scary. And oh, by the way, are you maybe concerned about this unspoken social capital power dynamic thing that I'm sensing? Be vulnerable, articulate it, don't let it hide under the, you know, dark shadows and, and you know, bring it out in the open in these private, safe conversations. And then at the very least, you can say, I heard you. I see all your concerns. There's not a lot of flexibility in the direction that we're going, but I think you can be an amazing partner to make sure we do our best to not hit these speed bumps. Like, will you come alongside and take a role in this change to help me, you know, mitigate those concerns that you just brought up to me? Because, you know, I'm, I'm just as stuck here as you are to some extent, my, you know, this leadership thing's coming down, but like, I want you to know that we're in this together, at least, even if the whole company can't be in it together, make sure your team is in it together. And that resistance is a gift. They're letting you know where they need your help. They're letting you know where they're they're concerned, where they're scared, where they're unhappy, where they're uncertain. That's a gift as a manager. You don't have to suss it out. You can just address it as best you can. And, and when you can't fix it, you can at least say, I can't fix it, but I'm here to be on your team. One last thing about that too is, often the people that are the active resistors also have a lot of influence. So by bringing them along, they can help educate people about, you know what? Yeah, it's gonna happen. Here's some of the things that I'm hearing about it. So again, that communication loop and keeping them in the communication loop versus avoiding a difficult conversation, which by the way, will not serve you. It's actually better. Yeah, no, it's actually better to rip off the bandaid and say, okay, I can tell looking at your face, you have some thoughts here. 
you know, why don't we set a separate time for us to kind of where you can share what what's going on for you around this. And I have a better understanding about what it may mean for you. I'll share everything that I can about what I know. And when we communicate about change, it needs to be true. So if you don't know, say you don't know. Um, don't say, yeah, I think that's going to happen. No, say, I don't know if that's going to happen or not. It needs to be relevant to the audience. So don't take them on a big journey of things that they don't really care about. That's like, don't give the backstory in a big way if it's not relevant to them. And it needs to be specific. So make sure you're targeting your communication in a way. And if you don't know, you can say, I don't know. I will find out for you. And that's where your leadership really shines is your commitment to your team to get them there. Mm -hmm. I think it's really hard again, because of the implication that you're a manager, because you know, everything and you know, no questions should go unanswered if you're a manager, but I think getting comfortable with saying, I don't know, but I can find out, or I don't know. And I'll give you an update as soon as I have one gives so much space <laughs> for being human and, and, and grace. Um, so I really appreciate that, that last thought and encouragement to be forthcoming when you don't know the answer. Mm -hmm. um, it's a nice reminder, particularly for new managers who maybe were promoted because they were great individual co contributors and are now just like trying to find their footing. Okay. Well, as I mentioned, uh, maybe before we even started this interview, I want to make sure that we've done your incredible book, Justice. Is there anything that before we wrap this interview up that we didn't touch on that you would really like to? I think you've done a really great job of letting us tell tell our story of how it came about and our highlights. So I, nothing is bubbling okay. up for me. How about you, Melissa? I think the final thing that comes to my mind is get the right people in the room. <laughs> yes. Uh, often, you know, get people involved from the beginning. There are people on the outside that we forget or neglect. And so as, and it's not too late, by the way, if you're already in something and it's, it feels like, oh my God, it's like the train has already left the station. You can always regroup. You can always invite the people in and say, let's have a check-in. Let's figure out what, where, where we're going and what that looks like. Mm -hmm. So it's not too late. Even if you're like, oh. I didn't do this work, Melissa and Jenny. Now what? Start yeah. where you're at. Yep. Yes, start where you are. I think they're my last two thoughts. Okay, wonderful. Where can our listeners find you? Where can they find the book? Absolutely. So everything about our book, including the link to buy and some resources is at changefatigue.com. And Melissa and I are also really active on LinkedIn, and we would love for you to follow our page and connect with us there. You can just search change facilitation and that page pops right up. But we are love the dialogue when we hear from leaders, change leaders and managers asking questions. So um, please consider us an open door there, especially. Amazing. And I will include links in the show notes for everyone. Thank you both so much for taking the time and being on the podcast. I learned so much today and I'm just very thankful that you both were able to join and have this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. If you're enjoying this episode of Leadership Revolution, I'd love for you to become a regular listener by subscribing. That way you'll never miss a future episode filled with valuable insight and inspiration. 
So hit that subscribe button and join me in the leadership revolution. Thank you so much for your support.